This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara region, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Abro Warno was born a sixth-generation dairy farmer on the New South Wales north-central coast. However, despite being surrounded by dairy cattle, he developed a passion for the beef industry. After his initial career plans didn't work out, he moved to Mount Riddick Station in Central Australia to work as a jackaroo. But that's not the end of Abro's story. He then went on to work as a park ranger across Australia, swapping cattle, for crocs and endangered marsupials. In this episode, Abra shares insights into his story so far and why he chose to come back to the station. Abro, welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah, we're doing, we're going to, yeah, start again, start again. Take three. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave this in. <laughs> this is the beginning. I think everyone loves a good outtake. Yeah. So. Whoops. I'm with you. Yeah, cool. Well, welcome. Now, before we get into our usual line of questioning, which is how we start off every episode, I do want to address the elephant in the room, which is your name. So, for people listening, I'm sure they read the title of the podcast and saw your name, which is Abro, A-double-B-R-O. Now, our non-Australian listeners might be wondering like, well, yeah, that's a bit of an unusual name, but why are they making a big deal about it? Why do we make a big deal about your name, Abro? Um, so my name, um, Abro, uh, I've been on a few training courses and, um, in the past where I'll introduce myself and, um, it can be misheard for Abo. Um, yeah, which, um, is a Ra- racial, racial slur, slur, um, mm. towards the Indigenous people. Um, and yeah, uh, a lot of the, the training, like we've had ind- Indigenous trainers, um, on these courses I've been at. And, um, yeah, they sort of think I'm making a joke sort of thing. And then, yeah, I've got to pull out my license and show them, show them the, um, the spelling and all that. And then they're like, Oh, yeah, right. I'm like, that's, that's unusual. But, um, <laughs> yeah, mum and dad thought it would be a good idea to pick that name. And 
yeah, I'm sort of stuck with it now. Yeah, so I just wanted to clear that up before we get into it, that in case people maybe hadn't list, uh, like read the title of this episode and they just hear us talking, like you said, it can be very easy to mishear as yeah. ABO, and just want to make it clear that's not what we're saying. It's ABRO, A-double-B-R-O, which is funny because when I got here a couple of weeks ago, I'd met you once before very briefly, but I don't think I had – well, maybe I don't even know if we actually met or if I just we were at the same thing, the Aileron uh, – Halloween party or the New Year's party. I remember Fran was there with the baby. And I don't think I actually met you or got introduced to you. And when I came here a couple of weeks ago and I was meeting everyone else's names and then you and I just started talking, I was like, crap, what is this guy's name? I was like, he looks like a Tom. Like he looks like a Tom. And then I was like, oh, sorry, I forgot your name. And you're like, Avro. And I was like, yeah, I never would have guessed that. No no one ever does. (laughs) So, now we've got that out of the way, let's get into our usual line of questioning, which uh, we start off every episode asking you, what are you watching, reading, or listening to at the moment? Yeah, I sort of just um, watch whatever the fiancé wants to watch. Um, footy season's just started back up, the rugby league, so. Okay, I was going to say, we also need to clarify that when you say football, you mean rugby. When I say football, I mean AFL. So. Yeah, real football. Yeah, rugby. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so I watch now that that started, we watch a bit of that. Um, but before that, we just finished season of suits and yeah, that's pretty much all we watch. We don't watch that much TV or yeah, anything really. Um, and then yeah, sort of listen to lots of music and, uh, podcasts when I'm driving around, um, called Shag Married Annoyed. Um, which is an English-based podcast run by uh English comedian and his wife. Yeah, and they just talk about general life and they've got two little kids. They've just had recently had a baby and they just talk about how tough life is with kids and just the um reality of life, how everyone tries to sugarcoat it, but they'll just tell you how it is and, yeah, how everyone just sort of puts a big facade up on how good their life is, but really everyone's in the same boat. <laughs> Interesting. I'll definitely have to go and look it up. Mm. Um, and for everyone else, we'll put the link in the show notes. So that shag married annoyed. Yes. I think it's really important when you listen to, or when you're in an industry like ours, that you listen to stuff outside of what you're used to. Like it can be very easy to get consumed in like country music and like podcasts about cows yeah. and soil and regenerative agriculture, but then to go and listen to something completely. Yeah. Different. Well, I'm lucky because my fiance is English. So she's the one that put me onto it. And, um, yeah, I never would have listened to it otherwise. So, but now it's me bloody favorite. So. <laughs> uh, second favorite. Yeah. Second. Second favorite. First now, favorite yeah. being central station. Yeah. Good work. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I am in distance and I probably could kick you under the table, but I'm not going to. (laughs) We got there. Yeah. Now, you are a sixth-generation dairy farmer or was born. Sorry, you were born a sixth-generation dairy farmer, but you are not a dairy farmer. We are recording here today from Mount Riddick Station, which is a cattle station in Central Australia. I want to figure out how you got from the dairy farm to here. So, let's start way back at the beginning at your childhood. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so I was born um, in Taree on the mid-north coast and my parents own a dairy farm and Dyes Crossing. So, I'm sixth generation. I'm one of six kids. So, I've got three older sisters, um, then myself, a younger brother and a younger sister. Then we all grew up on the farm. Together, we had a great childhood. It was awesome being in a big family. It's a bit hectic at times, like obviously – some like everyone gets along, but someone's always fighting and arguing. 
And yeah, growing up with the cows and the calves and we had horses, dogs and chooks, we uh, were very lucky. But again, it's a tough lifestyle dairy farming, um, which is probably why I'm up here now. Um, mum and dad still dairy farm and they seem to love it. But, um, as we speak, there's massive flooding down there and it's a bit hectic, but. Yeah, growing up there was amazing. My grandparents, who obviously had the dairy farm before my parents, they were around, retired when we were all kids. So we had them, got to do a lot of stuff with them. What was it that you didn't particularly enjoy about dairy farming that made you, you know, I guess at every, you know, everybody that grows up at some point, they may have the opportunity to say, do I want to do this? Do I want to pursue this and become the sixth generation or do I want to go and do something else? What kind of swayed uh, you? Just the industry itself, the dairy industry is very tough. Like it's seven days a week, 24 seven. Like, yeah, you can't really have that break. I guess, um, being a small dairy farm, like I think the property's roughly 300 acres. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's very small. Um, and it's just very demanding. Um, I think having six kids wouldn't have helped mum and dad. Like <laughs> can't be easy chasing them, trying to run a dairy, like trying to give us everything. Like um mum was forever running us all to sports, like swimming lessons, sports, um, trying to give us our best um, upbringing, which we did get. Um, but I think just that fact of um if we went to sports on a weekend, like that'd be watching the clock, like come like two thirty, three o'clock, like we've got to get home and milk or of a morning. It's, we've got to be up early to milk so we can get to them sports. Um, you go to a party or something like, Oh, we've got to be up early the next morning to milk. Like it's always that or there's cows calving, like got to be around. Um, yeah, instead, like it was a great upbringing, but it's a tough lifestyle. And, um, like I said, mum and dad love it. And I'm sure a lot of other people love it, but. For me, I love it, but I also love living away from it. <laughs> just not living it. Yeah. 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 So Going home for a holiday is always good. Yeah, just for that. You can leave. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. That's like me when I get to borrow somebody's child and you get to hand it back. Yeah. Like, some things are good in just small small. Exactly. When, packages. You, when you can get away from it. Exactly. Yeah. So when it came time, you know, as a teenager to kind of think about what you wanted to do and you knew – it wasn't being or staying on the dairy farm and pursuing that as a career. What came to mind? What did you think you might want to do? So something definitely with cattle, uh, like, yeah, definitely something with cattle. I, we, um, we showed a lot of beef cattle, uh, me and my siblings for a lot of years. Um, we worked for a, like a fitter. So he would. Sorry, what's a fitter? Uh, he's people like hobby farmers, like a lot of doctors and stuff like they'll have their little hobby farm and they'll breed like, um, cows sort of as their Wait, hobby. Yeah. And they'll want to show them like that. They spend a lot of breeding and, and buy a lot of good cattle and, but like don't have the time or the knowledge to, um, to show them. So, um, they'll send them to a person, a fitter and they'll break them in and, and feed them and get them prepped for show. And then they'll take them to the local shows and, and, um, prep them and, and show them, exhibit them, um, win, that, win whatever ribbons and so stuff. Wh- and where do you think the name fitter came from then? Sorry, I've never oh, heard I this wouldn't before. have a clue. I don't know. So a fitter is like somebody who is paid to show cattle. Yeah. And so like prepares like, and them, prepare trains them. them yeah. And, I didn't even know out. that was a job. Yes. Like, yeah. So we worked for a bloke and, and, and learn a lot from him, but he showed, he had his own Herefords and I guess that's where the passion for Hereford started, but he had Herefords and, and, um, his daughters have Brahmins. And then we, I think we've showed nearly every breed of cattle sort of there is almost because he had Angus, Brahmin, Santas, um, 
I don't know, everything. These Piedmontese, like, which not many people have probably heard of. And, um, no, so yeah, so that, like, that was great. And I think that's what sort of got us onto, oh, apart from the dairy farm, but like, we've always, I've always been interested in animals and that sort of kicked it towards the cattle industry and, um, something to do with back to the first question. Like, yeah, that got us back. That got us into the cattle. And that's when I was sort of thinking, um, along the lines of like a stock and station agent. So auctioneering cattle. That's when I sort of, that's what I wanted to get into. Um, but around home, there was no jobs sort of around and like nothing at that time. And my sister worked in real estate. And, um, so I just thought if I jump in the real estate and then sort of get into that, like, um, selling stuff and maybe try and get into the auctioneering in that, um, in property and then just swap over. But that turned out it wasn't for me. And, um, that's when I applied for a job, um, in Central Australia at Mount Riddick Station. Just before we get to where we are today at Mount Riddick, I just want to jump back for a second and ask, what is a stock and station agent and what is involved in that job? Um, So a stock and station agent. So to me, like your main job is is selling auctioneering um, livestock. Um, So your cattle and horses um, at your sales going around, like you'll have your clients either that you buy for or sell for. I'm pretty sure like your station side of it is like you can also sell your properties. So um like uh you can you can still be sell houses farms as as well as your livestock actually i suppose that was a bit of a trick question because uh if anybody has listened to our other podcast series cattle station classroom we actually have an episode on what a stock agent is and does so just plug in our other podcast there yeah <laughs> Um, but, and also I suppose the other thing is in some places they may just refer to them as stock agents or stockies, but, um, I know it's definitely like a very East Coast yeah, or I think down so. South thing to yeah. call it stock and station agent. Yeah. So you, you thought, okay, I want to stay involved in the ag industry, involved with beef cattle. So I might get into the agent side of things, yeah. buying and selling livestock and land. Well, that's what I thought. Um, but yeah, it got, it got into the, the real estate sort of thing and it taught me a lot. Big time, but um, just being in an office wasn't for me. I um, was it commercial or residential real estate? Yeah, residential. Oh, well, they sort of did everything. Like they did, they did do like farms for that area, but residential and and I guess small farms there. But yeah, like I said, just that office lifestyle was not for me, and I got sour pretty quickly, and that's when I started applying for jobs. Actually, I don't think I really applied for jobs. I applied for the one job and got it, yeah, on Mount Rick Station and, um, yeah. So, Mount Rick Station is a cattle station, as we I think we mentioned earlier, in central Australia, so a couple of hours northeast of Alice Springs. When a lot of people decide to, you know, when we have a picture, you think Outback Australia, Keeping Up with the Joneses, R.M. Williams, Outback Magazine, Slim Dusty ringer from the top end. When people think I want to go work on a cattle station, I want to go to the top end. I want to go up north, big spreads, Brahmin cattle, lots of people. You essentially, for your first job, became a ringer from the bottom end. So what made you want to come down here versus go and kind of follow the masses to further north? I guess it didn't really worry me where I went. I sort of just wanted to get into the industry, get it, get away, sort of experience the lifestyle on a station. It didn't sort of worry me that we were like south sort of a thing. But I think again, like, um, the station runs Paul Hereford cattle that sort of drew me here. Um, they're big into their cam drafts and horses, which yeah, I'm interested in also. So we get to go to as many cam drafts that we can get to in the year, depending on what's happening. So that was a big selling point for me. Them two things pretty much. Yeah. 
what was it like coming to work out here compared to growing up on a dairy farm? Yeah, it was it was a big big change. Um, like when we we drove up here, um, and it was obviously massive drive. Like down in New South Wales, where we're from, you drive ten minutes, like. 10, 20 minutes and you're always in a different little town or a big town. Whereas here you drive like hours and hours and see nothing. You might pass a fuel stop or a roadhouse and that's it. And then you drive another however many kilometers like for hours and see nothing. But yeah, driving into Mount Riddick and I think the front paddock, which is our horse paddock, um, it's like the size of my parents' property. So it's just like the one paddock is like 300 acres and that that's a big eye opener for me because I mean back home like our property it's not massive but for that area like it's a decent size and then you get up here and it's just like it's nothing but yeah it was a big difference um just the the, the climate the heat so um obviously like the the soil like it's a lot lot sandier the grass is massive like big change compared to like the the green paddocks of like Kikuya and um the grass from back home um everything's lush and green there's water everywhere to coming up here where it's i mean it was a good season when i first got up here all those years ago um and the cattle were rolling fat which i guess when you when you think you're coming to the desert you just sort of um never have been here you sort of picture desert like um sand like sand hills and all that and you get here and there's there's there is a lot of grass and shrubbery um like you wouldn't expect the cattle to be as fat and like as they were and it, it was it was a big eye opener i guess just what you sort of portray in your own mind from like sort of pictures you see like when you think of desert and tv and stuff and to getting here it was a big big eye opener what was involved in your job? Were you hired, you were technically classified as a jackaroo? Yeah, station yeah, hand? station hand jackaroo. When I first come up here, like I, I'd never sort of, apart from growing up on the farm and sort of the, the showing of cattle never really, I mean, you do fencing back home, but at home it's like wooden posts and barbed wire and stuff like that or electric fences where, um, so it, it's similar, but different, but yeah, just a jackaroo. So we just did whatever sort of had to be done. Um, fencing, mustering, cleaning troughs, just sort of what, everyone does these days so it was a big difference coming up here like as a station hand jackaroo we um we did like everything whatever had to be done i'd do it sort of a thing um so from like uh i think it was the first time i'd ever been on a dozer a d6 and we'd clear we'd do everything from the fence line so we'd clear the fence line um all the scrub off it and then you'd grade the fence line um put the pickets out, like knock the pickets in. Um, I think the first one we done was a laneway, which is 60 metres wide, and I think it was something like 8 to 10 kilometres. Yeah, so you, it's day's work. Like being, like me, the first time on a dozer, never driven when I wasn't that good. Just clearing scrub off took me a long time. And then all the cattle work, whatever's involved with that, you just do mustering, castrating, branding, all that sort of stuff, cleaning troughs any infrastructure stuff but like i said i was learning i guess how it was done up here the way they did it compared to what we did back home so that first year like you just sort of soak everything in and and learn as much as you can sort of sit and watch yeah and then just learn and take everything on board and then just run with it from there so in addition to Learning, so you kind of had a base knowledge in in some of the jobs that you'd have to do, some of the skills you needed, and then you were learning a lot of other things. What about the social side of things? How different was that compared to life back home? 
Yeah, it, it was it was a bit of a shock, culture shock sort of thing. Um, on the station, it's not like the big company places up north where they've got a lot of a lot of jackaroos, dillaroos, like a lot of young people. Um, it was, being a family place, it's quite small. But I guess it wasn't till um, like the local rodeos, like you got Aileron and Hearts Range, where you meet some town people or some other people off the the stations next door that you start to make sort of friends and that. And then uh, yeah, like you've got you've got to plan it a bit better where. <laughs> It's two hours to town, so like you're not going um, in all the time, sort of thing. And you'd wait for someone to be having a party, and then you'd you'd duck out. But of, of an afternoon, um, I guess you just make your own fun with whoever's here, and yeah, you just sort of learn to live with it. I guess um, you've got to be sort of that way, inclined to enjoy not your own company, but to be sort of isolated. Um, yeah, which I I enjoy. Um, I enjoy that. I enjoy being away from big towns and lots of people. Hustle so, and bustle. Yeah, like it's just your own sort of lifestyle um, out here. Yeah. it's. I guess it's, you know, I recently spent a couple of weeks in town or a month in town and it, I just find it's even though I can be out here for weeks or months at a time out on a station and I don't need to go to the shops, I don't need to do this or that, but I find that when I'm in town I'm like, oh, I just need to pop to Woolies like every day or hop, like go out for lunch or have a coffee. Yeah. Like, you know, you kind of need it when it's there, but when you're not there, there. you realise you just yeah. don't. Well, I guess Alice Springs is all right, but, I mean, going back home, I guess what you call proper civilization, like it's just – chaotic like the the people i guess you just you forget what it's really like and yeah you, you go there for your little holiday and then you can't wait to get back to your own little world out here now you came up for a year to experience life as a station hand on a cattle station and you obviously enjoyed it because you ended up staying for how long yeah well here for about three years and then i wanted to sort of get back home to the family and just be closer to them um and then so yeah we went Moved back to New South Wales, which is where I got into, I did contract fencing for a little while with a bloke. How was that compared to doing fencing out here? I don't know. It's, it's a lot harder because everyone down there like wants, like, well, we did, like, we'd cut our own, their own trees down and, and split the trees. So it was bloody hard that it was good fun. And, and I find fencing so rewarding because like you're instantly seeing what you've done, but, um, they both had their good and bad. Like I, I enjoy fencing no matter what, but like, from up here where like in the summer where it's stinking hot and you pick a pick it up and it's burning your hands and the dolly's hot and everything's hot. And, but then down there, like you're, you're cutting trees down and barking trees and ripping like splitting logs. And yeah, it, it was, it was a big difference. I enjoyed it, but, um, yeah, I was sort of just helping a bloke out for a little while till I sort of found something a bit more permanent. And that's where I um, applied for a job with parks and wildlife, New South Wales and, and got that in the Barrington tops. What made you want to apply for jobs with the parks and wildlife? You know, you said you grew up on a farm with cattle. You wanted to be a stock and station agent. That kind of wasn't an opportunity that was present at that point in time. So, you're like, I'll go and work on a cattle station. You spent three years on a cattle station, so clearly enjoying working with cattle. And then you're like, I'm going to go work in parks and wildlife. Yeah, I guess um I was sort of one of those kids that wanted to – um sort of give anything a go and um, like just being out in bush sort of like intrigued me and, and you're still outdoors and it's different stuff every day and you watch like, I don't know if they have it up here, but like back home, like totally wild and stuff yeah, like that. with Ranger Stacey. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I can't was remember. She on I, don't, that? I don't know if she was there. I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. But she like shows like that, 
which um, you see like in, out working with the the wildlife, like, like fauna and flora, and and looking after the land, like and. Um, I can't remember how I saw it. I think like one of my sisters showed me the job and I was just like, oh, well, like may as well have a crack. Like um, why not? Like just throw your hat in the ring and have a go. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, we'll find something else. Um, so what did that job actually involve? Because I suppose there's a lot of different things you can do while yeah. working under the umbrella of Parks and Wildlife. Yeah, so we were um, – I was a field officer based at Barrington Tops National Park and, I mean, you do everything from like infrastructure, like building infrastructure or or just maintaining the parks, so like maintaining the roadways and the walking tracks and the and the bushland. Um, there'll be – like you'd, you'd partake in, in, um, like wild dog baiting programs or like it, one of the parts of the park we had had, um, like an endangered rock wallaby species. So you might help do surveys. Like, so you, the, there was rock wallaby population on a part of the park and you do surveys on, on them and, and stuff like that. It was so broad what you do, but like not every day was the same. Like you could be firefighting and then being up in the top of the hills, you'd get snow during winter and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was good. And I really enjoyed like, um, even just talking to people because obviously like everyone's just like everyone you meet was traveling through the park or like they'd be on a holiday. So the people you got to meet and talk to, that was great also. But yeah, I done, I think I done two years there and it, it was, I was at the point where government's a bit the political side of government was uh, i don't know how to explain that's it. okay you're talking to the yeah uh, anyway preaching to the choir anyway they um the job roles like there was sort of uh, yeah like we were stuck where we were and i was like oh bugger this i'll apply for a job and, and i applied for a job with parks and wildlife in the northern territory of bachelor and i got that job so yeah i left new south wales parks and, and moved to the territory park Litchfield National Park, which is amazing there. If you've never been, go there. That's a magical spot of, the, of Australia. How does being a park ranger in two very different parks compare? Because like you just said, you had the endangered rock wallaby in the New South Wales Park. And all I can think about in – in so Bachelor is an hour and a bit from south of Darwin, very much in the top end. I can imagine that park's just full of like buffalo and crocodiles and God knows what else. Yeah, it, it was, it was a very, a very big change. Like I'll never forget getting up there and like just get out of the car, like the nice air con and you just like, it was wet season then and you just like drenched from sweat and you're just like, wow, like what am I doing up here? Like it's just so hot. Like how can anyone work in this like climate? But, um, yeah, once I got into it, it was good. It, it, it was so different. Just the country so different and, and having like your wet season, like when I got up there, it was wet season. So like everything's closed sort of a thing. Like your swimming holes were closed. Your, your four wheel drive tracks were closed. Like you could only get in and out of the, the main access point, like the main road in and out of bachelor, but everything was shut. And then you sort of like the jobs you're doing, like you might be spraying weeds, but, but between storms and the whole time, like it's just forever changing, like, cause one day it'll be dry, but the next you'll have like that night, you'll have a massive downpour of rain. And then everywhere you're going to go is like, just you'll get bogged no matter what and all that sort of stuff. And then like Litchfield being like the number one visited park in the territory is just chaos because of the amount of tourists and they're like come dry season. Like it's just absolutely hectic because you've just got like hundreds of visitors trying to get into these little swimming holes and you put like alcohol and that in the mix and it's just chaotic but 
at the same time. Like you're still outdoors, you're still um, in nature, you're still like just make it what it is sort of thing and just have a ball. Yeah, so. Tell me about some of the creatures that you probably had to come across. Like did your job, did you ever have to do much with crocodiles? So in Bachelor, like you, you'd come across like the, the pigs or the, the buffalo and they'll dingo and stuff like that. But I, I did a stint with, um, the croc management team. I moved to Catherine and did a stint with the croc management in Catherine, which was amazing job. But like any job after like that sort of initial, um, excitement wears off, it's just another day. So I'll always appreciate it and the stories like um yeah like that that first time of going out in the boat to catch your first croc like i don't know like you'll probably not hardly anyone will ever experience that and it's great like your adrenaline's pumping and and yeah i think we were at um catherine gorge there just just south of the gorge and um yeah you get like your onlookers around and it's it's all pretty it's not chaotic like it, it is very um structured so like obviously like the the parks and wildlife croc management team have been doing it forever and they've got their everything in place of how it's got to be done so it, it is is very safe but at the end of the day you're dealing with a prehistoric animal that's like got its own mind and it doesn't want to play the game but um yeah i just remember like i was very nervous and um but we got it done. Um, so you kind of, you had this experience in like dairy cattle management and then beef cattle management, like managing that sort of livestock. And then you go into croc management into that team. What is involved? You know, cattle management, we make sure they grow and we feed them and, you know, vaccinate them, breed them, do everything to get them ready for this, you know, supply chain, um, for the, for where they're going to end up in the market. But what, what is croc management? What did you actually do? So. In Catherine, like, we were just pretty much, like, the croc management, it's just a safety, like, it's just for safety for people around the town and and that um, crocodiles are very territorial. So, um, especially with the wet season and that, that Catherine River being right there, like, come wet season, they just up and down, like, wherever they want to go. And once they're happy with a the spot, they'll stay there. So, what what we did and what parks do is is they only monitor those sections that are heavily populated with people and that, and it's just... Yeah, you don't obviously don't want kids or, or tourists going down to the fishing and getting taken by a croc. So it's just, it, it is just, um, I think from Catherine, we did from the Catherine Gorge down to, I can't remember what the road was, but there's a big mango farm and we go into the back of that, which is, um, downstream of the Catherine Gorge Fairway. And that's sort of all we monitor. That's all that we, where we mainly monitored in that area. And then, your parks and wildlife, so your swimming holes like in Litchfield and um, at Edith Falls and that, like there'll be uh, like the, the rangers will go out and we'll monitor that area so that we'll spotlight overnight. We'll have the traps in place. We'll, we'll spotlight for three nights and, and go up and down the, the banks looking for um, any signs that we can find of a, of a crocodile. The traps will be in there. They're in there like sort of um, all dry season as soon as the 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 wet season's sort of over and you can get a boat in and put a trap in there. Traps will be there and they're constantly baited every day. So once there's no sign of a crocodile in the area and, and the rangers are happy, that's when when the watering holes will be reopened for, for the public to go swimming in that. Did you ever feel, you know, uh, the pressure of uh, and you are a part, of, a part of a team, but you're making that decision, okay, this this water hole is safe. You know, we've monitored it for however, however long it's taken for us to feel comfortable that there's nothing in here that's going to eat someone. So we are, we are 
saying it is safe. We're going to reopen it to the public. Did you ever just like ever just feel like, oh god, I really like you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big weight uh, to carry on your shoulders. It is. It is. It's pretty hectic. But I like to think like um, those procedures have been in place for like ever since sort of the parks have opened. Like I'm sure they've changed over the years, but like um, they've been in place, and I think like. It works. So, um, I mean, to an extent, you're still dealing with an animal, a wild animal that could come up that night and be like, Oh, what's in here? But, um, like I said, there is always traps like downstream, upstream of wherever people are swimming. A lot of the places in Litchfield, um, like you're swimming in the top, like on that plateau and stuff like that, which is, is safe. But yeah, I don't, it, it is scary. Like <laughs> I do remember working with one bloke and at the end of the day, it is in the back of your mind like, what if, yeah, something comes in there. But, yeah. I mean, you do everything you can. Like like I said, all the procedures in place, it's worked for all those years, so it'll keep working. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure they've got the track record to, you know, to show that yeah. it is working. So I just thought, you know, it's not a pressure that I would want. It's not a responsibility that no. I would be putting my hand up for. Obviously, you didn't stay with Parks Forever because here we are today on Mount Reddick Station. And as people would have uh, picked up earlier on the episode, that was the first station you came to work on. So, you've actually kind of come full circle and come back to Mount Reddick. Yeah. You did three years the first time. As we sit here today, you've been here for another three years. So, you've spent six years on this place in in part of, like I guess, for the that's more than more than half of the last decade, really. Yeah. Why did you come back to Mount Reddick? So with parks, like it, um, I sort of got a stage where I was sort of missing the family, like, um, sort of getting on in years, um, where it's like, Oh yeah, need to start sort of thinking about settling down. Um, and all my siblings had started having kids and, um, all the three eldest had started having kids and yeah, sort of like just mum and, and the family are sort of like pushing me to come home, be closer at least like back in New South Wales. And I was, Sort of got to the point where I'm, yeah, that, that might be all right. And so I started applying for jobs, um, in New South Wales and, um, I did a Beck and Steve as references on my resume. And that's, yeah, one afternoon I had a missed call from Steve and I called him back and he said, Oh, like if you're looking for a job, there's one here. And we had a chat and, um, I was like, Oh, well, why not? Like <laughs> it was good the first time. May as well go back and do it again. Yeah. And here I am. So yeah. Tell me about your job today. And the role you have compared to when you first came to Mount Rudy. Yeah. So like, like we said, when I first come here, I was just a, a station hand jackaroo, just done as I was told, sort of whatever needed to be done, I'd do it no matter what it was. And now I guess I still sort of do that. It's the same if something's got to be done and you're the one there, you just do it. Now, like, I guess the role as like head stockman slash assistant manager. Yeah. You're sort of just making calls, sort of running alongside like with Steve like yeah if if you see something that needs doing or you think it needs doing voice your opinion and and get it done like say this needs doing or or just go ahead and do it we have a good relationship with the owners Beck and Steve and and they'll back us 100% like if we think something needs doing and we just go and do it they'll be happy with that like they they respect our judgment and yeah normally we'll have a couple of jackaroos under, underneath us so guiding them trying to teach them how we do things making the station go forward now, they say it's, you know, impolite to ask a woman's age, but no, I never heard anything about it being impolite to ask a man's age. So, how old are you, Abro? Um, so I'll be 30 in October. Yeah. Oh, the big, 
big dirty 30. Yeah. And you are, as you said, you know, sort of head stockman slash assistant manager, but I mean, it's not technically, you know, you don't have the title and something that has come up in a couple of these podcast episodes is in this industry, there seems to be a lot of pressure, whether people put it on themselves or it's perceived or it's actually actual pressure to be progressing and kind of climbing that career ladder, uh, especially by a certain age. And so, you know, these days, you know, back in the old days, we'd have a 30-year-old head stockman. Um, these days now you have like a 20-year-old head stockman or a 22-year-old head stockman. People can be managers by the time they're 30. Even by 25, we've got managers. Um, and, you know, recruitment and retention issues is something that comes up in this industry a fair bit. And also I think there's a lot of focus on, I want to go work for a big company place. But I think the position that you have here is very interesting. And I just want to dig into that a little bit because you are, like we said, you don't technically have a title, but you are more or less the assistant manager. You've been here for six years. This is your full-time job. For a lot of other people, if they were 30 and still just working on a station, I'm using the air quotes here and, you know, technically a station hand or whatever, you know, there's it doesn't really happen and there's a lot of perceptions about that. So, talk to me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it does cross your mind. Like, um, I guess it always is, like you said, in the back of your mind, um, like, do you go work on a company and work up the ladder and and all that sort of stuff? But compared, like, in a family-owned property, it's always going to be family-owned. Like, it's always... Yeah, like, there's no... There, there isn't. Like, at the end of the day, there isn't. But um, the way me and my fiancé look at it, like... um We've sort of hit, well, we think we've hit the jackpot here. We're very well looked after. We're appreciated. We've got an excellent, excellent relationship with our bosses. Like, yeah, they, they look after us. We do sort of everything we can, whatever needs to be done. Like, um, it's sort of like it is home for us now that, that, I mean, if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it sort of thing. Like, like we're happy here. Um, everything's good. Like why chase that? Uh, what would you call it? Why chase like going to work for a company where you might be miserable or something? Um, or, or going out to manage a, another place like yeah, like yeah. You always think the grass is greener on the other side, but like until you get there, like I mean, you don't know. So for us, like being a small family-owned place, we we enjoy it. Like um, we know exactly what's got to be done. Like everything's good here. Um, and it, it doesn't. It, I guess it doesn't worry us at the end of the day. Like working here, like. And doing everything we do, there's nothing I'd say stopping us to apply for a manager's job on a property and not getting it. Like what we're doing here is the exact same as what they're doing, except we're just not a. You just don't. It's have, not a company. You just don't like, have the fancy title. Yeah, and for us, like, like I said, I mean, not so much. But you always think the grass is greener until you go somewhere and you you look back and you go, oh, like um, it's not like so. For yeah. us, it's it's everything we want now in our life where we are now like just having a little baby yeah everything's good um we enjoy the work we're looked after i think it's something that is overlooked a lot is that you know you yeah this idea of i've got to i'll go do my fears as a station hand then i'll be head stockman then i'll be manager then i'll keep going up or doing stuff but and then also you know i think people think oh if i want to progress in this industry i either need to go and work on a company place or if I start off on a, on a family place, then I need to then eventually get into a company place or a privately, you know, to, yeah. to be able to progress. Whereas I think there are a lot of opportunities on family owned places that p- maybe aren't realized because yeah. again, it's here you're, let's say you're here for another 10 years and you're in your thirties pushing 40. 
working on a family owned place, maybe you don't have the, the title of manager or assistant manager, but you've got all the skills. You've got a home. You've got a stable income. You've got everything you need. And that, like you said, there's nothing stopping you from going and progressing. Yeah. I feel as though, um, I feel personally and like, obviously everyone's different, but I feel like you might be appreciate, I feel as though you might be appreciated a bit more on a family, family property. Um, and this is only speaking from my experience. Obviously, like I know people that work on company places and they're happy and they love it. And, and, and there's also family places that yeah we're not going to put on the podcast. Ex- exactly. But yeah, like okay. that, that don't look after you. I think you just get lucky or you don't sort of a thing. And we've been lucky enough to fall on our feet. And be very lucky, like meeting my fiance here and stuff like that. And, and, um, and growing with the business, um, and stuff like that and bringing what we bring to the business. But I, I also sometimes feel like I have, I did do a short stint on a, on a company place where I feel like you're just a number. Like at the end of the day, like sometime it doesn't matter. We'll just get another one in. Like there's always another head, like young fella coming to be a head stockman or there's always someone else after a manager position. Like I, I sometimes get that feeling. Like whereas, um, Sometimes, like, to an extent, like, you feel part of the family here. Yeah, like, it, it, I don't know. From my experience, yeah, I do feel like sometimes a family place can can sort of give you a better opportunity, look after you a bit better and all that stuff. But in the same thing, I agree when you're in that company, like, there's always that ladder to climb. So, I mean, I guess it just depends what you want out of your life and, and if you're happy, Yeah. What would you say to people listening that I suppose do feel that pressure to, you know, they want to stay in this industry, they want to build a life here, but they feel like they need to just keep, you know, they couldn't be. I mean, so let's say technically on paper, you might be down technically. You know, I, I'm not sure what's actually written on your, you know, if there is a piece of paper, but I just know there's so many people that would be like, no, I can't be 30 in a station hand, even though it's so much more than that. And it's, but it's just the fact that you've got this to be, you know. Yeah. For me, like, not um, all about the, so we, we sort of. Like even if you never wanted to be a manager and you just want to do this until your kids are in high school and you're just, you know, a full-time permanent employee on a property, you've got to like, you know, what? there's nothing – there's just this idea of like, oh, well, if you're still doing that at that age, like what are you doing? But like you've got a home, you've – like, you, you know, it's – it is a – I guess what I'm trying to get across is that it is such a legitimate, valid job but i feel so many people see it as just a gap year thing or yeah. a stepping stone um, to somewhere else whereas i really want to kind of bring it back to you this is like kind of rebrand this job yeah um so when i when i come back here like uh, i think like we agreed on um like head stockman role um mm-hmm. when i left parks and then from there i mean i, I to be honest like yeah i i um <laughs> i don't even know what's written on the thing um but like in saying that like yeah, like t- to me, like with Beck and Steve, like they they sort of go away a lot more, so they'll be doing their their cam drafts and their and and going down to their property in Armadale. So at the end of the day, like we are in charge. We we are making the calls that are here when they're not here. We are um doing what's got to be done or what we see fit to be done, and, and they trust us with that. So to me, like um like Francis and I, we could we could apply for a job anywhere, and 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 whether we get it or not, that's another thing. But I feel strongly that that. The, what we have learned from Mount Riddick and, and working here on the station, we could put that to use on any station, whether it being company or another family in place, um, or if we ever won lotto, a station of our own. Yeah. But I, I do think like, um, the skills that we have, we've learned from here and, and Beck and Steve are happy to, to pay, like pay for us for training, like a, like a company does and, and put us through training and, and, and better our skills. Um, just like a company does, like they're happy. I guess the more they put in 
to us, like the, the better we're going to be for them, so to speak. Yeah. But I mean, I guess everyone's different. It's how, how you look at it. Like if you're happy with your life, um, and what you're doing, I mean, it doesn't matter what, whatever to, to me, what, it, when anyone else thing doesn't matter as long as I'm happy and going forward and, um, my life's good. That's all that matters. So I think whether I'm a station hand, a manager or bloody CEO, like it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's a very wise perspective to have it. And it's not one I hear often, I suppose. So, or, or to have it articulated like that, because I, I, as we've said several times, like there just is this perceived or actual realized pressure to, to always be climbing the chain. Um, what is, so I guess that leads me to asking you, like, what is the plan she, for, for you and Fran? Um, so I mean, life changes a heap when you have a kid. Um, Willow, like, Obviously now, like nothing else sort of, she's the priority. So it's trying to set up, um, our future. I mean, for the foreseeable future, I mean, it's probably, um, keep kicking on here. Um, obviously, um, long term, we sort of want to have a property of our own, whether it be a, a station or a farm back. New South Wales, Queensland, sort of a thing. Um, definitely be in the cattle industry um, somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Life's so hectic and you never know what happens. Um, definitely be in the cattle industry. Um, yeah, I guess we'll wait and see. Maybe do a podcast in 10 years. Well, if we'd done a podcast 10 years ago, I don't think you could have predicted any no. answers that you would have had today. So, no. um, yeah. Now for my favorite question to ask everyone, and I've already warned you about what you're not allowed to answer, is uh what do you do to look after yourself? Um, um Yeah. I don't know. Um to look after myself, I guess this day and age, I mean, probably if you asked me this back in the day it'd be Drink beer, but since having a kid, I guess at the end of the day, you just want to come home and spend as much time with her as you can. Um, Willow, she, she sort of now brings all that, that happiness to you. You get home and see her, um, brightens your day up. Um, apart from that, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it now. Me, like riding the horses, if I can get out and go for a ride with Fran and work a horse, that's, that's pretty, um, enjoyable. But I think since having, uh, since Willow being born, it's probably, yeah, get out and work and then come home and spend as much time with her as you can. And to finish up, looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major lesson that you have learned along the way? Yeah, for me, it's probably just have a go at anything. Like a lot of the, the things I've done, like I think it was sort of just throw your hat in the ring and if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, like you've lost nothing anyway. So um just have a crack at it and yeah, sort of. Just do what makes you happy. If you're not happy, just go do something else. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. 
They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.